0: Business investing has a racial equity problem. White investors, here's your guide to being part of the solution. Today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back. It's season two. This is episode three of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies and we need your help. I am your host. I'm Chris Wink. I'm the CEO of Technically. We're a news organization that helps you navigate your career in those oh-so-fast-changing economies. It's a podcast, Off the Sidelines. We take a deep dive into trends in business investing. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. For today's episode, I've called in one of my favorite white people.
1: Oh, no. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Awkward. Uh, but you are technically the a managing editor. You're Julie Zeglin. You do indeed happen to be a white woman. But true. perhaps more importantly, you've edited hundreds of voices, interviews, and perspectives from some of the biggest venture communities in the country. That is true, yes? That
1: is true. I can allow that.
0: All right. So my point in mentioning your whiteness is that white people don't (laughs) actually talk about race with other white people all that much. And that is a problem if you are trying to make genuine culture change in very white spaces.
1: Like, for instance, if just 4% of American VCs are black and wealth inequality by race has changed little in the U.S. over the last Mm -hmm. half century. Now, Chris, you are definitely a white dude and you have... (laughs) True. We've lots of pretty prominent white investors <laughs> are you guys like sitting around the golf course talking about race all
0: right all right shut up <laughs> yes i uh, you're well aware that i do not know how to play golf and i have certainly never been invited to a golf course but i'm i'm taking your your low-key shade point and yeah i do think that we technically i think we we a lot of us have had conversations with some thoughtful and yes, some less thoughtful white investors, about race and access. And yeah, to be honest, a lot of times we've been sniffled at in the past.
1: Because?
0: Because there is a view among investors that they are champions of capitalism, that that, that this is an efficient and productive economic tool, and anything outside of their laser focus is a distraction.
1: Like that social justice, that racial equality... These are just distracting
0: I, I don't think that they would say that I think I would get a lot of pushback but I, I do I think somewhere in their thinking that is the case that, that these sorts of inequalities will work themselves out that, that meritocracy will win
1: and that's the reckoning that we're seeing in 2020
0: Right, of which white investors are up to the task of doing something about systemic inequality in their sector and generally in an economy that they very much see themselves the stewards of. And which ones are waiting for the
1: great uh, invisible hand to do the work.
0: The invisible hand, yes. The Adam Smith reference lives on. And and that's that's right. But like if you are an investor at a firm or if you're just writing checks a few times a year and it's not even your full-time gig, if you think something might be structurally flawed, if you believe there might be a market failure here for so few black and brown entrepreneurs and other underrepresented founders to get invested in, no matter how free market you are, I think a lot of investors I talk to, and ah, uh, yeah, I do mean white male investors, I think a bunch of them are uncomfortable with doing nothing. I do think some are questioning the morality of their position.
1: Right. And as we've explored on this very podcast and plenty of places elsewhere, because of network effects and a whole bunch of other tricky reasons, investment decisions by white men tend to disproportionately benefit white men.
0: And you could argue that that is a pure moral failure, we saw that report from that, – that like the U.S. economy would be $5 trillion richer over the next five years if areas of discrimination were actually addressed. So there's a big economic risk for investors too of just missing out on coveted deal flow because they can't for the life of themselves get beyond the patterns of what they've invested in the past.
1: So we see investors approach this gap in innovation and commercialization for social justice reasons or market opportunities reasons, and sometimes both – but for this episode of Off the Sidelines, we're specifically calling out white investors. Why is that?
0: Yeah, because it's mostly who's at the table. I mean, in this country, we we have this strange default that issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, representation, or or whatever that that it should be should be solved by black people or people of color or women or any underrepresented group. And for sure, any method of addressing gaps always needs to be informed by whomever we're, we're aiming to solve for, but. That's different than doing the work.
1: Right. So white people have to do the work, but they need to be informed by other voices. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's what this episode of Off the Sidelines is.
0: Yes. We got there. Yes. And to do that, I had a conversation with an entrepreneur turned investor and one of his limited partners. So Brian Brackeen is the general partner of Lightship Capital. He has a brand spanking new $50 million fund that focuses on women and founders of color in the country's Midwest and, and in the South. And, and this fund just launched in 2020, like Brian on Zoom calls in the middle of a pandemic instead of flying into SFO. Brian is black, and I first met him as an entrepreneur in Miami. Now he's in Cleveland doing all sorts of big things. So I was catching up with Brian about raising his fund, and he mentioned one of his LPs was Second Muse. This is a, a design consultancy focused on diverse economies. It spun off an investment arm. And the co-CEO of Second Muse is his guy, Todd Kozen.
1: Chris, haven't I heard a story about you being at some fancy dinner with Todd and others in Qatar <laughs> a bunch of years back?
0: That is a throwback. Yes, I, have, I believe I have told you this, yes.
1: And, you know, i got to say, that doesn't sound all that different from a golf course.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Well, uh, I, 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 I think it is different. Um, <laughs> one, the makeup, one, the conversation, but also Todd himself. He, he's from Iran, and he presents as white. But maybe because of this, he has a pretty nuanced view of American race relations. And so when I heard that Todd had invested in Brian's fund, it felt like just the kind of opportunity to to have an honest conversation about what white investors need to know and need to be doing to have any shot at being on the right side of history. Let's roll
1: back the interview, and I'll see you on the other side.
0: So, Brian, you've had a heck of a 2020. So actually, I want to start with you. Why would you go to the the dank, dirty waters of VC and how'd you get there?
2: Because I love Patagonia sweaters. That's why. That's <laughs> why. <laughs> Brian Breitkeen, general partner, Lightship Capital. And why? Why do that? We'll learn during the podcast, but the problem is so great. The opportunity is so great. And just like when I was one of the few Black entrepreneurs doing facial recognition and I saw a problem with bias, I'm also one of the few African-Americans that have raised capital from outside investors.
0: And there ain't a ton of black men in BC. 4% of BCs are black. Sounds like that's something we should learn something about. So give me the brief window of, of how Lightship Capital came to be.
2: So I think my previous experience as an entrepreneur, also my experience as a consultant at IBM, plays a huge role in how I see the world, how I see all these businesses that we invest in. But as I come to this moment, it's just painfully clear that the opportunity it's huge, and it also has a kind of social impact, even though we're not a social impact fund, right? And so a couple things. We think about geography. The Midwest has the lowest cost to build a business at, to exit and it has the highest exit values, right? So what that means is for every dollar you put into the Midwest as an investment, you get $5.17 back. So it's a just a fertile place for startups. And then you take all these diamonds in the roughs. You talked about the amount of venture capitalists, 4% that are black. The people that actually get venture capital, like black women, for instance, get 0.2% of all venture capital goes to a black woman. Meanwhile, that group is one of the most highly educated groups in the, in the country, right? And So there's this huge gap.
0: And, and Todd, just by way of introduction, your work as co-CEO of Second Muse, an organization that does pretty incredible global kind of economic Work, but you also do some investing, and you're involved in Brian's fund.
3: Yeah, I mean, as you know, uh, Second Use has been doing work to try to build inclusive and sustainable economies for well over a decade, and we talk about economies of the future. You know, we talk about building the healthiest economies, and what we've seen in our work, you know, which is uh, reinforced by a pretty abundant source of, of research, is that those economies that perform best, and in particular, especially during the the nuttiness that we're seeing around us is that you're seeing that um, one of the really big needs of economies is to be resilient, especially bouncing back from, uh, from a hit. And one of the things that we have seen more and more of is that, uh, you know, inclusive economies fundamentally are just better functioning economies. We've seen this through our work, you know, in general, I mean, again, there's a lot of really good research that talks about you know, diverse boards make more money for the company. Diverse teams are more creative or more innovative. I mean, at the end of the day, innovation, in a sense, is the intersection of ideas and ways of thinking that previously might not have crossed. And this holds true, you know, at the larger level as well, which is you're talking about economy. And so the, the tragedy that Brian talked about when you talk about, for example, the the uh, lack of uh, of investments in black women that he was referencing it's tragic from an innovation standpoint it's it's not just tragic for the women they're not getting funded it's it's we're we're leaving incredible ideas uh, sort of on the table and so from second muse we it really started from a very global perspective we moved to new york about 6 years ago looking at advanced manufacturing economy you know as we started to do work over there we we saw that over the course of a matter of years you could change the culture and composition of an economy to be much more reflective of the diverse demographics that underlie that economy and we started to do work in the midwest as well and so this almost there's this demographic thesis and this geographic thesis that we were starting to develop and then we met brian and candace and and so we're i mean we're we were true believers of the of the investment thesis so uh, we have a number of financial sort of mechanisms that we both manage and make direct investments of
0: one clarification with utah that i think is probably important is i i hear almost two layers to why second use capital might be interested in, in a fund like lightship it's i hear both like which brian alluded to pure economics hey there's a giant market opportunity this is a way to make money which is whether we like it or not a fundamental core of our capitalist system and that's in part what is supposed to happen but i also hear a degree of a moral imperative so I wonder if you can talk a bit more about that. There's the, this makes financial sense, and this is a moral imperative, and it sounds like both are there. Yeah, 100%. I, I think that's absolutely right. Anytime you're taking a
3: look at a kind of complex issue, it's multifaceted, right? Several things can be true simultaneously. And I think that when you, when you think about, is it bad to systematically oppress entire groups of the human family? yeah hell yes i mean that's just that just feels wrong right i mean like you know it should be an easy is, st- sense to say yeah right like why do you want to keep people down like because of their gender because of the way they look because of things that are like irrelevant from a human standpoint so yeah i think that that's true but i think that simultaneously there's this other truth which is that oppression is really expensive <laughs> i mean it's like building economies that are that are exclusive building economies that are uh, bad for the environment are just expensive. I mean, think about, you know, Citibank just released this study where they, they build the cost of racism in the last two decades as $16 trillion. So I think that two things are, are simultaneous, right? One is that, like, is it good to keep people down from living their true potential? 100% not. But by keeping people down, we're not just affecting the people whose potential we're keeping down. We're keeping all of us as a society down because all of their ideas that were wanted to be in the world and ever were are never going to rise. You know, they're, they're brilliant innovations. I mean, there's a, hey, yeah, that's wrong thing. But it also doesn't make financial sense. Mm. You can't believe in math and oppression. I'll put it that, I'll put it that way.
0: <laughs> I like that. Can't believe in math and oppression. Brian, how much, when you were raising this fund, did you use both cases? This is a moral imperative this is just good market opportunity. Were they both tools? Was one used more or less? We lead with
2: the market opportunity, certainly, because we're we're a fund and we're trying to create market rate returns and that's the that's the headline on the building, mm-hmm. so to speak. But then how you get there really matters, right? I could build a fund full of oil and gas extraction, right? And and do really well, but not everyone wants to put their dollars there, right? I could make a lot of money diamond mining in Africa, right? But not everybody wants to put their dollars there. And so after you figure out what you want to, how much you want to make and what's the requirement, how you get there matters. And we believe that you know, we have a vessel um, that gets people there in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm.
0: So I've sure done a lot of reporting on a lot of well-intentioned investors who would testify honestly and earnestly that they have nothing to do with systems of oppression with racial inequality, that they are, they believe in the meritocracy of the systems they support. I think we're having a reckoning with that concept. So could we at least name it? Like, When and how do we mean and believe that white investors contribute to the system of racial inequality that we are still very much living in?
3: Let me speak of somebody who came from, who uh, fled his country because of religious oppression. Immigrants twice over, Grew up in Latin America and came over there and I said, wow, I had it good. Mm -hmm. When you think about systems that were designed intentionally for centuries to keep a group of humans down because they could be identified by the naked eye, you're not talking about using bad words, You're talking about an incredibly intricate and complex way of seeing the world that involves culture, it involves music, it involves narratives, it involves stories that you grew up with. And so we're influenced and affected in ways that we don't know. You know, when a system has been so designed to make you think a particular way, the second you step into that system, you're probably, you're almost certainly being influenced in ways that you may not have any idea. Now, this this is different than intentionality, right? You may have mm-hmm. all the good intentions in the world. And if you say, hey, I'm not that person, what you're saying is that I'm not trying to be that person. But, mm-hmm. but when you're in a system that's so steeped to prejudice you to think one way or another, think about materialism. We think about success and progress so interconnected with material progress that we have a hard time seeing success decoupled from material success. Mm -hmm. We have a system that has been so influenced by men and masculinity that we have a hard time decoupling successful behavior from masculine behavior. Mm. You gotta just be like, how am I contributing? Even if it's inadvertent, you know, ask yourself some uncomfortable questions. There's an assumption that if you're higher up on the hierarchy in the side of a company, that your voice is more valuable. Me as the CEO of a company, if I'm in the same room with an intern, I can't just expect the intern to bring their voice to the table unless I actually open the space to bring that intern's voice to the table. Mm -hmm. Because there's a current power dynamic that makes a certain assumption about me. So by me saying, I'm not going to go out of my way to help bring this voice to the table that previously was not there, I'm not only, I'm reinforcing a power dynamic that was currently there.
2: Yeah. I just want to double click on that a little bit. I'm going to give you a real example of how these institutional problems persist, right? One of the standards in venture capital is that general partners like me and my wife invest in the funds that they are leading. It's often called skin in the game, right? Um, You should have, usually you're wealthy. You might put hundreds of thousands of dollars or sometimes even millions of dollars into the same fund alongside with the investors because the idea is that it aligns all of the different groups financially, this makes perfect sense, theoretically. But the reality is, almost all venture managers that are black or brown are first time fund managers, right? And so they haven't had a chance to create a large amount of wealth in their lives as others. And so by saying, I only invest if people put in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars alongside mine, or else I'm not investing, That just eliminates an entire group that is systematic in itself. Now, Candace and I, to be completely just rawly honest with you here, we've invested about $400,000 so far into the fund, but we intentionally, the docs don't require that at all. And what Mm -hmm. we say to each of our investors is that we don't require it intentionally because we want you guys to get used to the idea that Black fund managers shouldn't have to adhere to that requirement for the first time and then in the second fund, you should require it, right? Just to mm. get more people into venture. We're going to do it ourselves, but start to think differently about this for the next person.
0: What I hear there is, I guess, two full, two big categories of what do we really mean. One is, is the maintenance of tradition without some of asking the hard questions, as Todd put it, like just assessing, well, why do we do it? Is it causing a cycle to continue that we don't? want or intend to and the other big category that i think so often about or have come across so often is pure network effect just you know rather than the the evil mustachioed evildoer in in your fund that is saying i want to keep down black and brown people there is this really messy system of well we have had success with those white founders, with those companies that sound and look the same. And this next batch of white founders who look and sound the same, look like that. Our business is pattern recognition. We should follow that pattern. A lot of it, you could say, as you sort of saying, Brent, in a theoretical sense, if you pulled out a lot of issues, you could say, sure, I can follow that. But that is a network effect that then makes it sure that that system will never allow other voices to come in. Is that fair? Like, those are the two ways I think about it. It's tradition and, and network are these big ways that white investors, even the most intentioned, are continuing this, this system
2: well, you, on. You preface this entire session on 2020, the world we're living in, right? I mean, the, the fires, right? unrest in the streets. We've reached a point in America where we can no longer afford, all of us as a group, to do it the same way. The same way has led us to a literal breaking point. And if you can make money <laughs> as well, fixing that system. So again, we're not asking for any handouts here. We're not asking for donations. I'm trying to give you as much or more money back as in all <laughs> your other investments. If you can do that and have less issues in the street, let's do that one.
0: love it. I want to like linger for a moment here on, on a group that I come across a bunch, though I think we've dispelled some of it. But there is this, it ain't my job. I've heard this a ton in doing interviewing off the record and otherwise, like, hey, my job is to invest in fintech startups and get a return for my LPs. Anything beyond that, I am deviating. I think it's great if philanthropy does that. I think it's great that there's some impact investing. Good job. That ain't me. I wonder if you guys have come across that and if you found any effective push. I've heard it. I have a few different responses
3: to this is not my job. One is that you know, if you're so good at pattern recognition, you know, are you recognizing the pattern of history? (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. we're moving in a particular direction. You know, our systems that we have built have outlived any value they once possessed. I mean, there are, when you build a house on a crooked foundation, at some point, you're going to get cracks in the wall. And we're not seeing something that happened in 2020. We're seeing the effect of decisions that were made long ago and have continued to be reinforced. So I would say betting on the present, or worse, betting on your past is a far riskier proposition than betting on the future that Brian is describing.
2: Mm. Also, I think in here, this conversation is we're starting, we almost come up with the assumption that venture as is is successful. Venture <laughs> as, a, as a class is not a very good asset class. Right. So so why are we doubling down?
0: And Brian, this? can we even pause it for a moment? I think, I think that's one of my favorite data points from reporting that I think is endlessly lost. The high rates of return in venture is so categorized with a very small number of firms that have now cleverly gotten themselves to be able to see everything and command whatever they want. And a whole lot of the VC firms like, man, you do better with a, you know, get yourself a Vanguard index fund because you ain't doing nothing with your VC. That's sort of what you're alluding to. In addition to like, forget that even the moral imperative for a moment, though we ought not. You're even describing that. It's not, this isn't even a, like that much a a collective, collectively successful financial instrument is, I think, sort of what you're saying.
2: That's exactly correct. I mean, it goes back to the, the talk about everyone fishing in the same pond. So everyone is in the same pond with, again, five fish. And next to you is Andreessen, right, the, these big firms, Sequoia. And these guys have boats with nets, and they're out there <laughs> catching everything. And you're saying the side with a small rod. And then Lightship and a few others are fishing in a fully stocked pond. If you don't work at Sequoia, if you don't work at Andreessen, your chances of getting one of those five fish is incontestably low. Yep. And so when you say it's not my job, what is your job is to create market rate return and to find great companies. And if you're fishing in an empty pond, you're not doing your job.
0: What is the advice, demand, strategy? How do you go from white investors being the problem to contributing to a solution?
3: Venture capital loses money as an industry, as a whole, right? So it's not, it is not a, and there, you know, this is pretty well documented. One of the reasons you got to imagine why there is a dearth of investment in people of color or women is because, because it's a risky field, people de-risk by familiarity. And so if somebody comes from the same place that I do, or thinks the same way that I do, or talks the same way that I do, that makes me feel like I understand this individual better or this technology better, even though I really don't. And so one clear thing is invest in Brian Candice, right? Invest in black fund managers, invest in women fund managers, invest in fund managers that are going to see the world's difference. Surround yourself and be influenced by people that are think differently than you. I mean, that's how you de-risk your thinking. Investment is a de-risking game, right? Try to see things, try to see your blind spots and find your blind spots. The only way that we can de-risk our blind spots is with each other, where the, each other is people that are different than us. And I think if there's concrete things to do. What is the composition of your team? Are you actively seeking pipeline that is more representative? Because to Brian's point, chances are that's going to improve the sheer quality of the
2: innovation in your pipeline.
0: Brian? you think you got any advice for the white investor?
2: Yeah, I would say a couple of things. To let a little bit of pressure off my white investor (laughs) brethren, there's a real issue around African-American fund managers who are really hardcore about not investing in African-Americans. There's a real problem with women investors that won't invest in women. So we have to kind of all think about the problem as well. But I think co-investing is important. In our case, we're a uh, early stage seed and series A investor. Sometimes we've got to pass them off to someone who's going to see them a little further down the journey. I think that's certainly very important. I think that giving back, whether it be office hours and things and not office hours in Palo Alto, right? <laughs> office hours in Oakland. Maybe, <laughs> maybe take the trip, right? Or even Even crazier. Office hours in Chicago or Detroit or Cincinnati or St. Louis. I know this is crazy talk. But you Mm -hmm. might just find some diversity because 90% of African Americans live east of the Mississippi. So Mm -hmm. don't think you're seeing all the black deals in Palo Alto when there are like three residents of Palo Alto that are black, (laughs) right? You gotta possibly check out South, you know, check out the East Coast
3: there's something else to remember right we're living in a in a period of time where we are sitting on the back of centuries of policies and narratives and stories that are designed to develop a structures some of which Brian was sort of breaking down a little earlier you know that include some people and exclude other people you know it's going to take it's not going to happen overnight right i mean some of this stuff is checking your internal narratives and asking yourself the deeper question and as you make more steps you're going to start to see a world open up into you in the way that you see the world and the way that you think about in the world and in the way that you're deploying
0: capital. Mm. So much of what I hear you guys saying are ask yourselves the questions as a starting point. What does my portfolio look like and why? Um, what does my team look like and why? <laughs> Am I fishing, as Brian puts it, in a well-stocked or overfished pond? I hear you guys Acknowledging this is a question both of, I mean, sheer morality. This is a social justice issue and a financial one. I think it's critical that you guys call out both of those points. Both of them seem to point in the direction of change.
2: I have to double down on Please. that one as well. We got we did some work with the foundation here in town, Cincinnati. Very, very painful group. And they were talking about how their donors are very focused on poverty work. They'll give money for blankets, and they'll give money for food Mm. banks, and they're willing to invest in, really, the outcomes of the systemic racism machine, but not willing to invest upstream, right, right, in investment in these communities, better jobs, building companies who also, when they exit, the whole team does well, right? Right. And they said, oh, it's really hard for our our folks to do that. I I can't tell you the number of folks that we've talked to who – Offered to give money to our efforts, but wouldn't invest from the fund, right? As if they don't believe in the very people they're trying to help. They don't believe in the people they care so much about can create market rate return. But we can give you a donation. It's it's insane.
0: And that I think at the end of the day is both a cause and a symptom of centuries of misaligned, of oppressive acts that we're aiming to solve for.
1: So, Chris, I really like this analogy of the pond. So they're saying essentially, would you rather be the investor with this tiny little fishing pole made out of a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, (laughs) staying next to Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen on their yacht, or would you rather be hanging out with Brian and Candice Brackeen, catching dinner and doing good, right? Mm -hmm. So Brian is very at ease with this both and duality of doing good and making business sense. It's worth remembering that lightship capital isn't just indexing for underrepresented founders in terms of race and gender they're also right. intentionally looking for into other geographies than say Silicon Valley and the New York to Boston cluster right yeah so I think the specific takeaways for white investors is to ask, does this source of deal flow actually make the most business sense or are you just overfishing because that's what you've always done
0: Good job committing to the metaphor and <laughs> yeah. I, I think that is right. I I have to say, having a lot of conversations like this, not all investors can talk both the moral and the financial benefits of addressing inclusion as well as Brian can. But there is a growing chorus of voices who do use both. Either too often you do this because you think it's immoral that we have a half century of limited progress on black household wealth and that black and other underrepresented founders have simply been systemically and culturally discluded from entrepreneurship and economic opportunities. And or, you see this is a pretty simple business decision. American consumers, one of the most powerful economic forces in the history of mankind, are getting less white by the year. Economic growth is going to increasingly be led by and built for entrepreneurs who look like those demographics, both in this country and around the world. And so like, White investors are failing their LPs and their plans for above market returns if they do not incorporate these massive global trends.
1: Okay. So we get it. It's an overwhelming case to do something. Yeah. But do we come away with very specific lessons for white investors? You know, can we deliver (laughs) on the title of this episode?
0: Right. What are you doing right now?
1: Right. So. So for me, here's the high-level takeaway. Think of it as both and, not either or. White investors, it's not charity or some feel-good thing to invest in founders of color or any other under, underrepresented groups. It's good business sense.
0: And there are tactical things you can do. We, we see this a ton. You, you can audit your portfolio. What does your founder mix look like? What do their teams look like? And And you can go farther. You can look back at your deal flow. Like, you would whenever you wanted to analyze its performance benchmark against other funds or investors you should also stack up against the community you're a part of what groups are way over indexed make that spreadsheet and it it sounds like pretty standard fair asset diversification if you ask me just why wouldn't you over index why would you avoid over indexing so I also think about, like, what meetings are you taking? Uh, Who is giving you introductions? What patterns or historical data are informing your decisions to go yes or no? Who is on your side of the table? What biases are you bringing to this work?
1: And if you're in venture capital to make money, as we know you are, you might just need to look beyond your patterns of funding to help find the big fish in the pond across the
0: way. Aw, Beautiful. Well said. Thank you, Technically Managing Editor Julie Zeglin. That is it. This has been the third episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love this podcast, if you like it, subscribe and even better leave a comment really it's not nonsense we really do leave a comment open your mobile phone give us some praise some love just a shout out it'll mean so much like always music is by blue dot sessions the episode was produced by q9 creative including kevin Schmidlin and Catherine nails with post-production by max graham i'm technically ceo chris wink we'll be back next week